Today is the one-year anniversary of Donald Trump's infamous photo op with a Bible at a church outside the White House, just moments after he promised to send the U.S. military against the people of the United States who are protesting racism following the murder of George Floyd. It is also the 100-year anniversary of the infamous racist Tulsa massacre in Oklahoma. Today we talk about all this, but also we talk about the working class struggle outside the United States, and in particular, the huge opportunities and challenges facing the left-wing people's movements of Chile. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's June 1st, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Walter Smolarik here with our host, Brian Becker. Nicole Roussel and Esther Rivera are off this week. So, Brian, today, the anniversary of two infamous things, one 100 years ago, another just one year ago. Tell us a little bit more. Right, Walter. Today is June 1st, 2021, the 100th anniversary of the racist Tulsa massacre in 1921, directed against one of the most prosperous black communities in the United States. Racist mobs of armed white people who had been deputized by the police attacked and destroyed vast parts of the black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 300 people were murdered, 6,000 black people were arrested, and about 10,000 others in this relatively thriving community were left homeless. The property damage amounted to more than $1.5 million in real estate and $750,000 in personal property. But if you do the math, if you use today's dollars, the damage was the equivalent of $32.65 million in 2020 dollars. That's what was destroyed in the Tulsa Black community. We're going to talk about Tulsa today. We're going to remember it. And it's very important that we do talk about it because for a long time, part of the last hundred years. Not only was Tulsa not adequately remembered, it was deliberately put under the rug. It was deliberately not taught. It was deliberately not discussed. But we also want to open, Walter, with the anniversary of what happened one year ago. Also related directly to the centuries-long struggle against racism, white supremacy, and nonstop racist violence perpetrated by the capitalist state. This is the anniversary, or we might call it the infamous anniversary, of the time when President Donald Trump decided to use all-out military force to crush the nationwide rebellion or uprising against racism that was sweeping the country one year ago. It all began 
the week before on May 25th with the brutal slow motion murder of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin that was captured on video, that was viewed millions of times, and that led to an uprising in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the site of the killing, but quickly spread to cities and towns all over the country. Most of those who were participating in the demonstration were coming out in what were called peaceful demonstrations, and they were 99% peaceful. There was some looting, there was some vandalism, and in Minneapolis, a police precinct was overrun by angry protesters. But for the most part, the demonstrations were peaceful. They were large. Millions of people came out within the next few weeks. 35 million people had participated. The largest single protracted protest like it in American history. Half of the people who came out were coming out for the very first time to a protest. Donald Trump had expected June 1st to be a turning point whereby the government using military power against the people of this country would be able to subdue and suppress the nationwide protests. He held a conference call with the governors of all 50 states. Joining him on the call was Defense Secretary Mark Esper, the civilian in control of the Pentagon, also General Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon, along with William Barr, the Attorney General. Here's a clip of Donald Trump speaking about his plans that day on June 1st. This was him talking to the media at a press conference after his conference call with the governors from all 50 states. That is why I am taking immediate presidential action to stop the violence and restore security and safety in America. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. Therefore, the following measures are going into effect immediately. First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. So there's Donald Trump promising military action against the people in the United States who are in the streets protesting using the First Amendment to speak out against racism and police violence. I want to play one more audio clip from that same press conference by Donald Trump, June 1st, 2020. Let's listen. I am also taking swift and decisive action to protect our great capital, Washington, D.C. What happened in this city last night was a total disgrace. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers 
military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. We are putting everybody on warning. Our 7 o'clock curfew will be strictly enforced. Now, what's important there is that the night before, what Donald Trump is referring to is that there were about 100 teenagers who were engaged in looting just north of what's called the Tenley Town area. It's a middle-class area in Washington, D.C. There's lots of chain stores. The police were there. The Metropolitan Police Department were there. There were big demonstrations of tens of thousands of people, but these 100 teenagers went over into the Tenley Town area and they were starting to loot some of the stores. The police presence there was very, very big. It was very strong. As a matter of fact, it was so big that they could have stopped that looting at any moment, but they let it run. They let it run and run and run because they wanted the video from that night to be able to say, and this is the Metropolitan Police Department, the MPD, they're under the jurisdiction of Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, not a Republican. They allowed that looting to take place. Again, it was small scale, it was small numbers of people, but then that was used in the media. The police deliberately allowed that to happen so that the video would run and run and run in the media so that they could portray these protests, again, as I said earlier, which were 99% peaceful, as being nothing but a bunch of looters. Then the mayor declared a 7 p.m. curfew, and that played directly into Donald Trump's hands as he was trying to portray all of the protesters as a riotous mob, a bunch of left-wing revolutionary socialist rioters who had to be suppressed by using military force. Now, again, Donald Trump expected June 1st to be the turning point. They had the video. They had the ability to dominate the narrative. Now they were going to announce that they were going to use military forces against the people of this country who would be able to subdue and suppress the nationwide protests. Even though the story of June 1st has been told many times, including here on this program, I believe it's critically important to review what actually happened, why it happened, how things turned out so differently than Trump had expected, and why. Unless we actually go over and repeat and even risk redundancy in the review of these events and other events, the bourgeois media will succeed in establishing the historical narrative, which will be interpreted as what really happened. Our strength as a class, our strength as a people who are mobilizing for social justice, can't simply be based on our determination. It must also be based on our political consciousness a consciousness that is accurately formed. Consciousness, political consciousness, is not formed in the abstract. It's not mainly formed by reading books, even though books are important. Consciousness is based or formed in battle, in struggle. And with struggle, there is also the battle of ideas with the dominant narrative represented always by the ruling class. Karl Marx famously said, quote, the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class, close quote. That is all too true. Change comes about, however, 
when people who are engaged in struggle and as a consequence of their engagement and struggle form new ideas, their ideas actually go through a change. They depart from the dominant narrative. They reject the dominant narrative. They reject the false consciousness that flows from what the ruling class offers as truth. This, in fact, is the process through which class consciousness forms. So again, we're risking the patience of our listeners by repeating or going over something which we all have discussed before, but we think it's so important in terms of how these events will actually be remembered. Again, I said June 1st, Trump thought would be a turning point. Three days earlier, or maybe it's two days earlier, on May 29th, 2020, Trump tweeted in reference to the protests in Minneapolis, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I don't know if people remember that. That's the president of the United States basically threatening to start shooting people in the cities and towns around the country. We might also remember that in that infamous conference call with the governors of all 50 states and where Trump was demanding that they stop being, quote, weak, close quote, and that they start using the full array of military power against the protests, Mark Esper, who was the Secretary of Defense, the civilian in charge of the Pentagon, said that the United States government must, quote, dominate the battle space. He said, I agree with President Trump. We need to dominate the battle space. We have deep resources in the National Guard. I stand ready. The chairman stands ready. That's Mark Milley. The head of the National Guard stands ready to fully support you in terms of helping mobilize the Guard and doing what they need to do. Again, they're talking about employing military force against the people in the United States who were involved in demonstrations all over the country. So here we had a situation where Trump is talking to the governors in all 50 states. He's talking to them from Washington, D.C. That day, that same day on June 1st, the mayor of the District of Columbia, Mayor Muriel Bowser, not a Republican, a Democrat, she announced that she was going to be imposing a curfew that would start at 7 p.m., and she had also called out the National Guard. We had the governor of Maryland saluting Donald Trump on that call saying, yes, we agree. We have to call out the military. If we call out the military, we can make these demonstrators dissipate. They will start to scatter. Those are the words of the Republican governor of Maryland, Hogan, who was considered by the Democrats to be to the left of Donald Trump. So you had the Republicans, the Democrats, of course, Donald Trump and his entourage leading the charge, demanding that the U.S. military crack down on the people of this country. What changed the situation, because that was what was about to happen. That was what was happening, but it was about to happen with a new intensity. But when Donald Trump cleared Lafayette Park, cleared that space, used the police, the Secret Service, the National Guard, the Metropolitan Police Department to clear the space, to attack peaceful protesters and the media who were there covering the peaceful protests, just so that he could walk across Lafayette Park and have his photo op taken with a Bible in front of St. John's Church on the north side of Lafayette Park. When that 
story came out and it was clear that violence was used against the people not to keep our neighborhood safe, not to keep our community safe, not to stop looting, that they were ready to employ military and police power, which they did at that moment against peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C., at the White House, just so Trump could have his picture taken with a Bible. Then it became clear that all of the propaganda that was demonizing the demonstrators was, in fact, propaganda. And people all around the country rebelled. Instead of the promised use and intimidating use of military force against the people, this promise of military force coming as it did on the heels of the clearing, the violent clearing of Lafayette Park, the attack by the police against these peaceful protesters and the media, it had the opposite effect. And the next day, hundreds of thousands of people, and by the end of the week, millions of people came into the streets again, many of them, perhaps in that week, most of them for the very first time. And as a consequence, Trump's efforts to use military power failed. And as a consequence of the people's response to the threat of violence, the Democrats then started breaking away from Trump's promise to use military force. Then Muriel Bowser, the mayor of the District of Columbia, started distancing herself from Trump. Then she started painting a street around the White House, around 16th Street, including in front of St. John's Church, where Trump had the photo op taken with these giant message, Black Lives Matter. It was only in response to the masses of people's struggle after June 1st that turned the tide. When we think back about this year, this amazing year, that's the thing that we have to remember. Any concession, any reform, the taking down of any Confederate monument, any discussion of police reform, the conviction of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis, all of it was a consequence of the people responding to the June 1st provocation. Remember, that day on June 1st, Already arriving in the District of Columbia was the 82nd Airborne Division, along with active duty military police units from Fort Bragg, Fort Drum, and Fort Riley. They were all being staged at a joint base at Andrews Air Base outside the nation's capital. The Army's 82nd Airborne Division is an elite division specializing in air assault based out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Its soldiers are easily recognizable by their maroon berets and double A arm patches. And that unit, the 82nd Airborne, has been involved in virtually every U.S. military conflict since World War I. Trump was bringing them to Washington to use against the people. And it was only the massive response of the people on June 2nd and June 3rd that foiled the plans of the government. We can never, Walter, forget that lesson. Yeah, I mean, such such important points, Brian. What an unbelievable year. I mean, in terms of the transformation of people's consciousness, I mean, 35 million people went into the streets by one study's estimate over the course of the year. I mean, going to a demonstration, especially going to a demonstration like the ones that were happening last summer, where you are in the streets with huge numbers of people 
uh, or you're in a small town where there had, you know, maybe never been a demonstration before or hadn't been a demonstration for decades. When you're in a moment like this that's so intense and you can feel the collective power of the people in the streets, that can really change your life forever. You can become a political person. You can become an organizer. You can become somebody who tries to activate others and bring others into struggle. And I think that's been the case for tons and tons and tons of people, especially young people who have become fighters for freedom, for justice, for equality over the course of this movement and many more movements to come. You know, for instance, just in the last few weeks, we saw this phenomena play out, I think, in the big demonstrations that happened for Palestine. I mean, a lot of the people there were holding Black Lives Matter signs. They had been participants in the demonstrations, maybe activated by the demonstrations the year before. This is a profound thing that will have cascading consequences for U.S. society and politics for a long, long time to come. And then on the issue of repression, one thing to add to that, I mean, in addition to the full force of the regular armed forces of the United States, right, be that the National Guard, the actual military, you know, the airborne divisions, or just the uniformed cops that are normally patrolling the streets of cities with military gear. In addition to all of those regular armed forces, we also saw right-wing vigilante violence emerge in a really serious way all across the country. And it shows how the mobilization of racist mobs has served and continues to serve at key moments as an important essential auxiliary to the forces of this racist state. I mean, it was the same thing with the Ku Klux Klan, right? I mean, there was the regular you know, forces of the Jim Crow South, the cops, the sheriffs. And then there were these extra legal, but, you know, of course, completely tolerated paramilitary organizations. In Philadelphia, for instance, the statue of Christopher Columbus became a main focal point as the uprising went on. You know, this genocidal slave trader, people wanted his statue taken down. And then there was this racist mob that was formed to essentially, you know, in their words, protect the statue. And so when people were getting beaten, I mean, brutally beaten, protesting this Christopher Columbus statue, the cops were sitting there, they were standing there, they were, you know, watching, but they weren't actually the ones who were doing the beating, right? It was these racist mobs. So I think that's another key lesson or danger or caution that people should take away from this and be prepared to counter the next time. So Brian, let's talk about the other huge anniversary today. People all across the country are remembering the Tulsa massacre of 1921, one of the most infamous acts of racist violence in the history of this country. Brian, I mean, let's try to draw out some of the key facts from this 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. I mean, what do people need to know today about that infamous event in order to continue on the struggle for justice and against racism that we've been discussing. Right. This is also called the Black Wall Street Massacre, the area that was destroyed, the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a thriving, prosperous area where black business and black banking was, again, thriving. At that time, it was considered the wealthiest black community in the United States, thus the name Black Wall Street. 300 people were killed. The entire area of Greenwood was burned down. White mobs not only attacked black people, but they flew in airplanes and dropped bombs, dropped fire bombs onto the buildings. And so the people of Tulsa were visited by 
aerial bombardment in addition to mob violence. The white mobs were deputized by the police and the sheriffs. The massacre actually began the day before June 1st on Memorial Day weekend after a 19-year-old teenager, Richard Rowland, who was a shoe shiner, was accused of assaulting Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white elevator operator. He was taken into custody, and immediately rumors started that he was going to be lynched. African-American veterans who had served in World War I, World War I came to an end in 1918, just three years earlier, they started to march on the jail to make sure that there was no lynching. And when they marched on the jail, they were attacked and they defended themselves and there was a shootout. And that shootout then prompted the formation of these huge numbers of lynch mobs of white people, again, deputized by the police and given permission to kill black people. And black people were lynched and killed in very, very large numbers. Tulsa's founder was W. Tate Brady. He was a KKK member. He had earlier led the tar and feathering of members of the International Workers of the World, the IWW. The IWW and the Socialist Party was very, very strong in Oklahoma. And there was something called the Green Corn Rebellion led by socialists. It was a workers' armed uprising against U.S. participation in World War I that took place in World War I. So the left was strong in Oklahoma, and the black community was stronger after the war because African-American veterans who fought in segregated units came back from World War I. And as Nelson Peary, Marxist you know, revolutionary leader later, who wrote about his own story about being in the segregated black army during World War II, the point that Nelson Peary made that the black soldiers coming back after World War I were a force of dynamic change because, as he said, you can't go and fight overseas as a first-class soldier and come back and be a second-class citizen. You're just not going to take it anymore. So black veterans were strong. Uh, They were emboldened. They were empowered. And in the case of Tulsa, they organized to defend the individual, Richard Rowland, who was about to be lynched. By the way, Walter, this came in 1921. In 1919 was something called Red Summer, the Red Summer, where white racist mobs attacked black returning military veterans because those veterans were you know, unwilling to take the same kind of crap that they were constantly being forced to take before the war. They came back, they had fought for their country, they had carried arms in hand, they just weren't going to take it. And the Red Summer was another huge, you know, wave of racist riots here in Washington, D.C. at the Howard Theater. African-American veterans from World War I took sniper positions on top of the theater and drove off the white mobs that were attacking and killing black people in the area called Shaw, the neighborhood in Washington, D.C., where the Answer Coalition today has its offices, in fact. Anyway, that was taking place throughout the country. Tulsa was a place where the massacre was completely successful. And then afterwards, the history of it was completely covered up. It wasn't talked about. Basically, you were punished, you were repressed if you talked about it. And in order just to survive, people stopped talking. 
But now, as a consequence of the struggles against racism, of course, important movies that have been made about Greenwood, and again, this year, the nationwide uprising against racism, even the president of the United States, Joe Biden, took the time this week to mark the anniversary of what happened. Yeah, Brian, thanks for laying out that history, you know, not nearly discussed enough in schools or in the media. Today might be an exception, but of course, people shouldn't have to wait until the centenary anniversary of an event to learn about it. And this really was such a pivotal moment in U.S. history. I mean, this was really the high point in historical terms of the extreme repression, the Jim Crow style apartheid repression visited upon Black people in this country. I mean, many of the Confederate monuments, for instance, that were the target of demonstrations during the protests over the summer, many of which came down, were actually constructed in this period, right? They were monuments to Confederate leaders, to Confederate soldiers, to the Confederacy, but they weren't built right after the war. It wasn't a thing about mourning. It was about asserting white supremacy, the dominance of white supremacy in society. And and a lot of those were put up around this period two, to highlight a couple of those themes that you hit on, this theme of military service and how that has led to an increase, an uptick, an intensification of resistance to racist injustice. Another instance of that can be found in Monroe County, North Carolina's successful defense organized by Robert F. Williams against Ku Klux Klan terror. Robert F. Williams was the leader of the NAACP chapter in Monroe County, North Carolina. This was in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And because people were organizing against the system of segregation, they were the target of Klan violence. And Robert F. Williams organized self-defense squads composed in large part of Black veterans of World War II. The Black Panther Party, too. I mean, many of the core organizers and leaders of the Black Panther Party were veterans of the Vietnam War. In fact, the defense of Black Panther offices the tactics and structures and booby traps that were used to defend Black Panther offices from attacks by the police were actually inspired by the Vietnamese freedom fighters who were struggling for the independence of their country. Walter, those are really, really important points. The struggle against racism is at the very center of the class struggle in the United States. It has been since the formation of capitalism as a nascent social system back in the early part of the 17th century, 1607 or 1619, certainly. As Malcolm X said, you can't have capitalism without racism. He was talking about American capitalism, and that's certainly true. Racism is at the very center of the class struggle in the United States. Let's now turn, though, to the class struggle elsewhere. Let's talk about Chile and what's happening with the regroupment and strength and effective work of left parties in Chile. Of course, 48 years ago, this September 11th, was the tremendous catastrophic destruction of the socialist government in Chile, the government of Salvador Allende and the popular forces aligned with Allende. That was carried out by the Chilean military, but with the direction or at the direction of the U.S. government, the CIA, the Pentagon, the Nixon administration, That was a historic defeat. When Salvador Allende was elected president in 1970 as a socialist in a united front with the Socialist and Communist Party and other left forces, the working class of Chile voted 
perhaps 80% for that united front. Again, Allende had a plurality in the overall election totals, but within the or among the proletariat, among the working class in Chile, maybe 80%. And then after the coup d'etat or the counter-revolution in 1973, it looked like all was lost because the destruction of the Chilean left was so vast, the violence so widespread, the number of people killed or forced into exile was so great. It looked like it would take forever, if ever, for the Chilean left to recover. But here we are uh, after a nationwide uprising and people in the streets, people battling for justice, and now left forces are also securing very, very big election gains at the polls. Let's talk about this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, very important lessons to draw and things to look out for coming up in Chile and in Latin America more broadly. We're going to talk with Carla Martin, who joins us from Philadelphia. Carla Martin is a key organizer with the Philadelphia Liberation Center. She's a Chilean activist who was an organizer in the 2011 National Student Strike at the University of Chile. Carla, welcome to the Socialist Program. Hi, thanks for having me. So Carla, I mean, like Brian was laying out really tremendous developments. In October 2019, there was an uprising in Chile, a historic, heroic uprising of the people. Dozens of people were killed by the military and police in the repression. There were hundreds, if not thousands of people blinded, thousands of prisoners. But the Chilean working class rose up and they rose up because the neoliberal policies that had been pursued since that 1973 coup that Brian was talking about, the anti-working class policies that decimated people's rights, became completely unbearable. And the straw that broke the camel's back was this fare hike for public transportation. It was actually a very small fare hike, but because of the built up pressure of all these years of anti-working class policies where seemingly everything in society is privatized, everything is so expensive, salaries are so low compared to prices. It was the last straw. And so people engaged in this rebellion. There were very complicated politics that happened afterwards, but the outcome was this constituent assembly first referendum a couple months ago, and now the actual election of the body where the left-wing parties have a majority. So Carla, now this constituent assembly has been elected. We know who's going to compose this body, but what is it? I mean, what is a constituent assembly? How did it come about? Yes, that's right. So it all started in October 2019, when the Chilean working class led a massive uprising. Now, it's important to mention that this came on the heels of the feminist movement that became very strong in 2019, and in particular in 2019, for March 8th, they led a massive march. It was nationwide. Now, you won't hear this on the official numbers, but it was almost about 2 million Chilean women that were on the streets that day. And that is huge. Now we have to consider Chile is a very small country, it's only 70 million people. So really it was almost one in five women that were out in the streets. And this really helped raise the social consciousness. Then the slogan of the uprising was, no fueron 30 pesos, fueron 30 años, which translates, it wasn't the 30 Chilean pesos of the fair hike, it was 30 years. And 
This is 30 years of neoliberal policies of the constitution that was inherited by Pinochet, tyrant Pinochet, dictator, who had the country in poverty and where social inequality was so high. This neoliberal policies might sound abstract, but what it really means is that everything was privatized. Everything from health to pension funds to education. And it was devastating for the working class. I mean, we're talking about the Chile here to give you an idea that had to organize bingos to be able to pay for their family members' uh, medical treatments. And this was true for my family. My grandma, who raised me until I was a teenager, had lung cancer. This was back in 2008, and we did not have the funds to pay for her medical treatment. It wasn't covered under the national healthcare system. And we had to organize bingo with family members and neighbors in order to pay for her medical treatment. And unfortunately, by the time we were able to raise the funds, she passed away. This was the Chile that was inherited. This was the constitution that Pinochet did. So people, the working class, the people were so tired of these injustices. The pension funds, it's another great example as well, because it's privatized. To give you an example, if you were a public teacher, your pension fund would be the equivalent to less than 300 US dollars monthly. 50% of the population in Chile makes about $600 monthly. That's half of the population. So just to give you an idea of what these neoliberal policies mean. So as a result of that, there were protests happening at every level in every territory. At local level, neighborhoods were organizing general assemblies, were organizing pots uh, banging, cacerolazos it's called in Latin America. They were organizing protests. It was a lot of spontaneity and organic organization that took place. And it was a huge surprise to the right-wing government. At the beginning, they were not expecting that it was going to grow so quickly because Chile has had a history of a strong popular social movement and it comes and it goes in waves, but nothing really to this degree had taken place in the country. And what happened was that in the government, Piñera government fear of a national strike that was going to take place in November, so almost a month after the uprising, November 15th of 2019, they met up. It was like at 2 a.m., you know, where people are sleeping. They met up and they formed a coalition. They met up all the political parties. It's important to mention also that the Communist Party was not part of this discussion, but Frente Amplio, the Broad Front was, and other political, progressive political parties were part. They met and then they signed an agreement for the peace and the new constitution, Acuerdo por la Paz y la Nueva Constitución. And that's when really this whole process started. And now we have to be clear that there is a lot of other demands of the popular movement that have not been met. It's written all over the walls nationwide in Chile that the people want Piñera to resign. He is a violator of human rights. He has been responsible for the murder, the torture, the sexual assaults, the eye mutilations of 
thousands of Chileans. That demand has not been met yet. And the other thing is to free all political prisoners. That has also not happened yet. But this new constitution means to put an end to that era, to that dictatorship, to Pinochet's constitution. And it's going to be huge and we'll see you know, what the outcome might look like with all the, there is a lot of political parties involved. So, so we'll see how it turns out. And I am personally very critical of how the process was carried out. Like I mentioned, this accord for the peace and the new constitution was discussed in the middle of the night where all Chileans are sleeping and in the morning they're like, okay, we came up with this agreement among all political parties, but where the people were not involved in that discussion either. So there's a lot of nuance there. And this process, I forgot to mention, was called cocina constituyente, which means the cook or the kitchen constitutional because it was discussed in closed doors among the political parties and not the people or social organizations. And another obstacle that the protest movement faced was was the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, you had this agreement that was signed. And so, you know, some of the political forces decided that they wanted to essentially turn down the temperature on the demonstrations and refocus people's attention on a constituent assembly process. But then a couple of months later, COVID broke out. What impact has that had on the Chilean people's movements? Uh, The impact has been huge. I mean, to start, the country has been on a curfew since October 2019. And when the pandemic hit, that was an excuse for the government to take this militarization of the country even further. Santiago, which is the capital, continues to be on a curfew. Now it changes from time to time. But I mean, it's like almost going back to the dictatorship. You cannot be in the streets or outside, leave your house after 10 p.m. And that has changed. Sometimes it's 9 p.m., 8 p.m., depends on what the government decides. And that has mean that there are militaries out in the streets and they have an excuse now to repress people under the basis of, you know, we understand it's a health crisis, but they are not taking the right measures. I mean, with the healthcare system that is privatized. So they are just focusing on the pandemic in terms of the health crisis, but they're not really addressing or justifying that there is so much repression going on. People get arrested, even for organizing popular kitchens. There are so many instances of people, because the Chilean economy relies so much on informal work, and that's like street vendors. So the unemployment rate went up and it's really high right now and people trying to make a living cannot go out and sell stuff and then if they do they get repressed they get beat by the cops they get arrested and in a way i think like the repression has made the resistance stronger as well and there's still a lot of organization happening i think that a lot of the neoliberal system came with this individualist values. And a lot of people always talked about, you know, Chile is very individualist, but it's really interesting of the contradiction that the capitalist system forces you to create solidarity, build that solidarity and organization because 
you cannot rely on the state. You have to rely and survive with your family and your neighbors. And you have to help each other out because there is no other means for survival. It's your livelihood. It's a stake. You need to be able to organize and help each other out. So I think like despite the fact that it's been really hard for families because of the lockdown, the total lockdown that has been taking place. And we have not experienced this in the U.S. A total lockdown means you cannot go out in the week at all. You have to have a permission slip that is issued by the police department, the Carabineros, the Chilean police department, and you need to carry it out with you. When it was total, total lockdown, you could only go out for two hours a day if you had to do grocery shopping. You could go out to do exercise really early in the morning. It was only like one hour for 6 a.m. to 7. So it has impacted Chilean society a lot, but I think this has also helped with raising social consciousness. And I am very hopeful that the organization and the solidarity that has been taking place since October 2019 will not go back and will continue to become stronger and stronger. Well, time is running short. I just want to swing around and get to one other key part of the Constituent Assembly that was recently elected in Chile. There are reserved seats for indigenous peoples in Chile who have been so brutally repressed for so long. Tell us a little bit about the struggle of the Mapuche people and the prospects that Chile could become a plurinational republic. Yes. I mean, the new constitution is going to be very important for the self-determination of the Mapuche nation. They have been at war with the Chilean government in the Araucanía region for so many years, and they have resisted for so long. One of the constituents that was elected was actually in prison and tortured in jail. She was a political prisoner, and now she is going to be part of the body that rewrites the Chilean constitution. So that is a huge advance. There has been so many murders. They are living under the Chilean military regime. And the struggle there, you won't see it in the news, but it's a daily basis where they face the repression. And they do not discriminate among women, children. They just repress everyone. And this has also intensified with the Chilean uprising as well. And it's not only the Mapuche, there are other indigenous peoples, you know, in the north and down south as well, that continue to resist. So I think that this is going to be very important for that creation of the plurinational state, like you mentioned. And final question, you've organized both in Chile and in the United States. What are some key lessons that activists, organizers, socialists here in the United States can take away from these dramatic few years of Chilean history? One of the things that I would say is the need for a revolutionary political party to be able to guide the masses, to be able to be a weapon in the hands of the people, because Chile does not have that. And my analysis would be that there needs to be a revolutionary party in Chile to be able to do that because there was a lot of spontaneous organization going on, but there is no right now political party that represents the people. All of the progressive political parties are not representing the working class right now. A lot of them are led 
by petty bourgeois activists, but it's not a party of the working class. So I think if there were to be a revolutionary party in Chile that could lead the masses, it would make a huge difference. Walter, very, very important information from Carla Martin. Let's turn to our last story. Again, you are the editor at liberationnews.org website. You have a weekly newsletter. What are the big stories? Yeah, so please go to liberationnews.org, sign up for our newsletter, comes out once a week. Highly encourage everybody to check that out. It'll help you stay on top of the news. A few articles that I wanted to highlight here. One is titled Facing Up to Fascists, Alvarez Family Fights for Justice in Chicago. This is about a very important police brutality struggle, a struggle against the notoriously racist Chicago police and how right-wingers mobilized to essentially defend these killer cops, but the people did not take that lying down. Another very informative article here, it's titled Israel's Long History of Anti-Black Racism. A lot of people are learning about the Palestinian liberation struggle for the first time. A lot of people are learning about the history of Israel and the settler colonial oppressive project for the first time. I highly encourage everybody to spread this article around because it's some essential history about the viciously racist character of the Israeli state and the political movement that led to its creation. Finally, I want to recommend an article titled Lasso Takes Office, Who is Ecuador's New President? Help you stay on top of important developments in Latin America, the battle between progressive forces and the right wing. There's a new president in Ecuador who's from the right, but of course the people's movements there will continue to fight. So just one last time, want to encourage everybody, sign up for our newsletter. You can see the button at the top center when you go to liberationnews.org. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Professor Richard Wolff. We're talking about basic Marxist ideas, concepts, definitions, categories. In tomorrow's show with Richard Wolff, we're going to be talking about how Marx and Engels, yes, Marx and Engels so long ago viewed the interconnection between capitalist development and environmental destruction. Again, we're looking forward to tomorrow's show. And then on Thursday... We'll be back with the real story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Mm-hmm.